Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 29 of Renar Voice. My name is Robert Swatala. I am the co-host for Renar Voice. And with me always is my co-host and friend, Jeff Mazzone. How are you, Jeff? Good morning, Robert. He's smiling at me already. There's, there's we, a little we, hesitation there. <laughs> we oh. haven't even got started and you're smiling <laughs> at me. So I don't even know what, what to think about that. <laughs> I'm just happy to see you, you know? <laughs> I know, I know. I always enjoy our time together. Um, yep. You know, hey, you got to be like having multiple countdowns going here. I mean, this is a busy time for you. You got, you got what? Christmas and Advent. You mm -hmm. got uh, graduation coming mm -hmm. up. I mean, mm -hmm. literally knocking on the door for you. Well, at least on paper being done with class. You, you got two a move coming. I mean, holy smokes, man. You got a lot on your, lot on your plate there. There's a lot going on. Uh, I'm trying to mitigate the physiological experiences of the stress that we are experiencing, both uh, myself and my wife. It's amazing how uh, stability in kind of your living situation uh, is helpful. <laughs> yes. Yes, it uh, is. It's not like we're like stressed out, but I think our bodies are like our bodies sense that we're living out of boxes and school is do, ending. And yeah. do you mean to tell me the body keeps a score? Is that what, is that what you're, you're referencing? I think, there? I think that's what I'm saying, which is so that's a great tie in for today's episode. I, I just took the uh, CPCE, you know, you test. So I've, I've been really studying. So all of your, uh, all your terminology and stuff actually is relevant to me now. Cause I remember it. Oh, so. <laughs> Way to go. Way to crush that. That's a huge milestone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was good to get out of the way. I'm a little bit, a little bit behind you in terms of uh, the, the timing, but I'm certainly, I know I'm having my calendar and checking the days off as we go along. So uh, happy nice holidays to, to you, yeah, my yep, friend. Yeah. Um, Christmas is coming. Hey, it'll be nice to graduate with you in May, by the way. Just yes. Yeah, yes, okay. it will. And for our listeners that didn't know this, this will be the first time that we actually meet face to face. That's right. You know, we we meet virtually every every other week or so and talk quite frequently. But um, I'm picturing you're going to be shorter than what you look like on video, Jeff. Wow. Yeah. Just, just my two. Okay. Uh, <laughs> or taller. I may be shorter. <laughs> oh, well, hey, um, again, happy holidays, not just to you, but to all of our listeners. Um, I hope everybody has a blessed season. Um, and then we just prepare our hearts for the true meaning of what Christmas is. And uh, looking forward to the opportunity in this time of season. And along with that, um, we have a great guest for today that I think kind of lends into that a theme of forgiveness and hurt and, um, yeah, just some, some really, really good stuff that I think we can learn about today. So, Jeff, can you introduce our guest for today? Yeah, so today we have Dr. Teresa Phillips-Harris, who we actually met uh, before she uh, received her doctorate from Liberty University in Counselor Education and Supervision. Uh, she is also the founding uh, president of another CSI online chapter here at Liberty, Roeta New Gamma. So we're really pumped to have her to speak about a topic that is dear to both of us, Robert, I think, that coincidentally she wrote her dissertation on. <laughs> so we have our resident expert on um, you know moral injury and sexual shame and, and self-forgiveness, which are topics that have come up way more than I expected in my own clinical work as an intern, uh, especially with um, with young Christians, young young women in particular, uh, who've kind of had a conversion later in their life, and now they're looking back at, at kind of choices that they made or maybe didn't necessarily make fully, and just how to wrestle with that in counseling. 
So Dr. Teresa Phillips-Harris, like I said, she uh, received her PhD from Liberty and she received her master's in school counseling and clinical mental health counseling from Ohio University. She has over a decade of experience as a licensed school counselor, private practice clinician, and residential treatment substance abuse counselor. Dr. Phillips-Harris currently serves as an assistant professor for the Department of Counselor Education and Family Studies, where she teaches in both the school counseling and clinical mental health counseling programs. In addition, I don't know how she has time, but she also maintains a small clinical practice uh, in Ohio. Dr. Phillips-Harris enjoys attending and presenting at conferences, collaborating on research projects, mentoring, and training new counselors. Her current research interests include moral injury, trauma, shame, and self-forgiveness. So Dr. Phillips-Harris, good morning, and thanks so much for being here today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you guys about these wonderful topics. Yeah, that's great. So let's just dive in if that's okay, Robert. Let's just go for it. Doc, as we kind of get into the conversation here, can you help us establish some just operating definitions of these key concepts? What do we mean by moral injury, self-induced moral injury, uh, the sexual shame and self-forgiveness? What are we talking about here? Yeah, those are um, really important terms to understand. So when we're talking about moral injury, um, that research really developed out of um, the PTSD research and going, okay, we have a group of people who are treatment resistant to PTSD protocols. And what is it that they have in common? And um, this research was done with veterans. And what the researchers noticed was that all of these treatment resistant clients had um, issues with moral um, situations regarding the trauma they experienced. So um, they weren't moving or progressing in the same way as their peers because they were stuck on moral issues um, when they looked at the experience that they had. Um, and so really when we're talking about moral injury, it's when something has occurred that goes against our values and beliefs, our deeply held worldview. Um, and when we're talking about Christians or you know any kind of spiritual belief system, um, we're really talking about an, kind of an attack on that system. And so you can imagine um, if you're a military personnel person and you're put in a situation that violates your moral values and beliefs, um, that's going to cause you to question some things. Um, our U.S. military is made up of all, over 80%, almost 90% Christians. There, there's a strong um, belief system among that group. And so it's particularly hard for them because um, they, they face a lot of trauma. And so it was a really good group to start out looking at those issues with um, and really um, figuring out, okay, so... Our, our current system isn't working for them. We're not providing them with the relief they need. What do we need to do to address these other issues? And so when we're looking at moral injury, you know, we're looking at someone who's like, how can I um, believe in a God or practice a religious belief system um, when my God has let this horrible thing happen? And, you know, where was he during this time? And so, you know, it, it, it it really impacts um, the believer's um, relationship with God, relationship with others. So there's a lot of withdrawal that happens um, with moral injury, which creates loneliness. Um, there's a lot of shame experienced um, with that process. You know, how much of this was I responsible for? Um, and when we're talking about a 
situation where the person is the perpetrator, the one who caused the moral injury um, to their values, then that's a really significant issue um, because not only are they challenged to, you know, seek support from their families, their friends, from God, from their, you know, spiritual and religious community, um, they now also don't trust themselves. And so um, it just creates this really big pattern of shame um, and a shame loop that's really hard to get out of. Um, and so when we're looking at, okay, how do we help clients recover from this level of shame, we really have to think about, um, you know, the forgiveness research. And so we're looking at self-forgiveness in particular, um, we know that when someone violates their values and beliefs, they have typically three ways of responding. Um, so either they um, objectively look at it and approach the problem and are like, okay, what can I learn from this? And here's what I'm responsible for. Here's what was situational. Here's what the other person's responsible for. And then they take on the appropriate amount of guilt regarding that situation. That's hard. And that's kind of rare. Like people don't do that easily. You have to really be reflective and and seeking understanding, right? What happens more often is people will either blame shift, putting blame onto other people, um, and reach a place of what's called pseudo self-forgiveness, which is like fake self-forgiveness because you think I have no um, objective responsibility, or they take on too much shame um, and get stuck in this shame, blame, self-condemnation cycle. And so that's really the crux of what is impeding recovery for a lot of people struggling with moral injury. Dr. Phillips-Harris, I have like, mm -hmm. like I think about eight questions floating around in my head right now so that I'm going <laughs> to pick from, from that. Um, but I want to go back to kind of what you started with the, some of the research and, um, you know, kind of relating it to the results from the PTSD, um, probably studies and trials and seeing those that were affected by it and their, their treatment and those that weren't. Um, this data, this research that's coming out related to moral, moral injury and self-forgiveness, is that a product of the PTSD research? If we wouldn't have had that kind of that starting point, do you think this is something that would come out of it? Because, you know, I, I know that there is a lot of research now. I'm thinking of what, what Brene Brown has been doing. You mentioned that earlier when we were talking, you know, some shame, you know, and vulnerability research. But is is that kind of how this has evolved from those individuals that kind of were not getting the results that maybe some of their peers were that had PTSD type of occurrences or symptoms? Yeah, yeah. And it is exactly how that happened. So I think that the PTSD research definitely led to um, our understanding and or even just discovery of moral injury. You know, I think that it was really wise that this group of researchers were looking at what what's the commonalities between our treatment resistant clients um, and these veterans or active duty members who are struggling to move forward. You know, a lot of times, you know, people can have a, gr a group of, let's say a group of soldiers have the in same experience, right? Um, depending on their level of resiliency that they've built up prior to that experience, um, they will respond in multiple ways. So, you know, we look at like ACE studies and how many 
pre-traumatic you know, traumatic events does someone have that makes them more susceptible to new trauma? Um, and so when you look at, you know, let's say there's a group of 30 people who experience this traumatic event, right? So we know some of them won't experience any kind of response. Like they have enough resiliency that they can process that on their own and be objective about that, right? And and that's why not everybody has a trauma response to traumatic events. Um, and then we have another group of people who will feel like their life was in danger or the life of someone they cared about was in danger. So they'll have that post-traumatic stress response to that situation. Um, or they will also have this moral injury response like, you know, how can I live in a world and believe in a God who would, would allow these kind of things to happen? Um, and so, or they could just have that and not have the PTSD response. Like maybe they didn't feel like their life was in danger or the lives of others was, were in danger. So, you know, there's multiple, like really four ways of responding, right? So there's, you know, I, I can resiliently process this objectively. Um, I can have a PTSD response. I can have a moral injury response, response, or I can have a moral injury and PTSD response. So where both of them are like occurring simultaneously. And so what the researchers were finding was that some of their clients with PTSD were making progress to a point, right? Like those that had both. PTSD and moral injury were making progress to a point and getting better, but then they would reach a wall and they wouldn't get any better. So that's where they were like, okay, what's happening with these people that, that they're not getting to this point where we see our other clients getting, um, or the, the protocol didn't work at all because it was actually moral injury that they were experiencing and not PTSD. Dr. Phillips Harris, that's like a real perfect kind of way to set the foundation, I think, for what we're hoping to kind of discuss uh, for the rest of our time together. Now that we understand kind of the relationship between moral injury and PTSD and kind of the broader network, uh, perhaps we can get very specific now and and talk about sexual shame. Um, in, in particular, uh, in the clinical setting, you know, we're curious what dynamics have you noticed um, in your research and in your clinical experience as someone um, is working through uh, the shame, perhaps, of their sexual past, especially, like we said at the beginning of the episode, especially for those clients who maybe later in their life, um, as they've kind of uh, grown deeper in their relationship with the Lord or looking back at, at situations they were in maybe in college or after college, uh, whether they were consenting to sexual acts or something traumatic happened to them, just what does that look like in the clinical setting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it looks differently for every client, for sure. But I definitely think um, we have to think about the world we live in here in America, right? Like, even though um, we have a lot of people who c claim to be Christian or claim to not be Christian, right? Our our foundation in our country is Christian-based. And so even, like, our laws and our rules and how we think the world is supposed to work are based on Christian values. And so, um, you know, a, a lot of times clients won't even realize that, you know, the thoughts or the feelings that they're experiencing are, are, are in line with Christian values, right? Because, um, you know, the spirit gives us that sense of right and wrong, whether we're believers or not. And so, you know, that that piece is there. Um, and so it, I think sometimes I'll be sitting with people who are, you know, claiming to be far from God and, you know, feeling him very distant, but still functioning from the space that um, 
kind of aligns with God's values and beliefs. And so the things they're struggling with are because they understand, you know, this universal truth. And so I think um, that's part of it that like our, that clients just naturally know like, okay, this doesn't work well for me. This isn't right. Whether they're a believer or not, um, these choices are harmful to me. And so when we talk about clients who, you know, maybe weren't a believer early on and then, you know, became believers, um, you know, I think that almost sometimes makes it easier to say, well, that was before Christ and now I have Christ. And so, um, like my old flesh has gone away and now I have new. Um, I think the harder part sometimes, at least in my practice, has been those who grew up in the church, who um, understood what they were supposed to do, fell away during those teen and college years. Um, and the research shows that that's quite prevalent for our young adults, our teens and young adults to fall away from the church. Um, and then to, to come back to those beliefs. Um, and like realign later in life, like whether that's when they're getting married or, um, you know, just become, you know, becoming a professional and, and wanting to make different life choices. Um, and so I think that's where I see my clients struggling more is in that scenario. Um, but I guess I'm curious, like what um, kinds of things have you guys seen or are your clients experiencing? Yeah, and I'm glad you asked that because it kind of ties into kind of one of the follow-ups I had is, you know, um, I see a lot of shame, you know, and you mentioned that earlier. And I think that's a product of a lot of these topics that we're covering is especially, if, you know, a sexual sin um, type of, of dynamic or uh, um, maybe a sexual morality type of dynamic, especially for those that are that are in the church that may feel the weight of that. I have to act a certain way or I have to be a certain way or I have to present myself in a certain way. And I think that shame is what, what sends a lot of individuals into isolation, which just further breeds. And we, you know, talk a lot about a shame cycle as a, as a fuel for addiction. And, and, and I guess from my standpoint, that's, that's where I see a lot of the, I'll call it the jet fuel for a lot of dysfunction is, is in that shame. And, and, and I guess my question to you is, um, if that's the root of it, if that's the heart of maybe some of, uh, you know, whether it's addictions, anxiety, depression, narcissism, you know, pick a, a wide variety of things that shame can contribute to, how do we get to the root of shame? Well, I think it first has to go back to, um, you know, where aligning our, ourselves with biblical truths. Um, if I'm talking from an individual perspective, you know, I think that we need to make sure we understand what does God have to say about us, right? And so, I mean, just just think, let's just talk for a second, Genesis 1 through 3. Um, you know, God there talking about, you know, he made men and women equally, created them in his image, right? And so we are all made of him right we're part of him in his image equally and i think that's really important to remember when we're sitting with clients because every client is a child of god they're in that um 
beautiful space with us. They have no more, no, no less value. Um, and, and helping, you know, them to understand that I think is important that, you know, we're all equal and in, in God's image and, um, and starting from that place, I think, even if that's just on a personal level as the counselor is, I think, super important to the counseling process. Um, and I think when we're talking about shame, like shame is the first emotion mentioned right there in the Bible and that, those um, first three chapters. And so, you know, I almost wonder sometimes, did God put it there? Because he knew it was the thing that was going to cause us the most, most pain. Like he mentioned that emotion first. Um, and so that makes me really curious about like the role of shame in our lives because it's the first like negative emotion that God identified. And so, you know, we know shame's a problem. We know it's getting in our way. Um, when we look at shame for, you know, any number of reasons, um, it really is the, the biggest obstacle to healing. So, you know, if we look at Brene Brown's work and the work of many others, we see that um, shame really is the catalyst like you said for that shame cycle because um it's hard to get out of it it's a shame blame ongoing process um and what the research is telling us is we need to help people become more objective so that they can reach a you know a place of being able to feel guilt because guilt is motivating guilt allows us to seek change and to feel like we're empowered to make that change where shame is debilitating and it keeps us stuck and so be helping our clients be objective helping them see okay how much of this is my responsibility um you know taking on blame for something I didn't know when I was younger, if, you know, that's the case, like, that's not really helpful now. And so, you know, you can't undo what you didn't know, or you can't undo the changes you made when you did know. And so what can we do with the information that we have now to move forward and do that objectively? Like how much of this am, am I responsible for? How much of that was the circumstances at the time? How much of it was the influence of others? Um, and so we really have to help our clients process all of those pieces so that they can reach that objectivity and um, create a new narrative for themselves about what that situation really means to who they are. Um, I also believe God doesn't give us any of these experiences that he's not going to use for our good and the good of others. And so, you know, really, you know, looking at, okay, where's the benefit to, you know, this, where's the silver lining? You gain something. How could you help others with that? Um, who might be struggling with similar things in the future um, and kind of empowering my clients to see that there's probably a purpose in, in this negative experience. So um, I don't, that's kind of my approach to it. And does that make sense? Yeah, that that's really helpful. And and that kind of sets the stage again. I feel like we're doing a pyramid here. We're getting, you know, well, maybe that image doesn't work. Whatever. I'm not a visual person. That's Robert's job. Yeah. <laughs> As I was saying, we're going the wrong way. For yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, okay, so a couple of things. You had mentioned before um, this particular population of folks that grow up in the church, fall away in their kind of young adult years, uh, and then come back. And in particular, I think that's the population I have in mind, um, just framing this conversation. And there's a couple of points there uh, to kind of bring to the the conversation that um, I'm hoping you could address. So the first would be, and you mentioned this uh, just now, just like really how free was the person 
during that time. So in particular, I'm talking about like a, a young person's college age uh, time, you know, and, and partying and hooking up and just the the promiscuous hookup culture there, uh, one night stands, all that stuff. So I guess the question there is like, well, I've noticed that folks can equivocate whatever consent that they were giving during that time to sexual acts, they will equivocate that to being the same consent that is given in marriage. Now, as Christians, we know, especially with um, the theology of the body, as we Catholics call it, um, that the marital act in the context of marriage is a totally different degree of freedom, uh, of integrity, and of consent and full gift of self that is free, total, faithful, and fruitful, which is not necessarily going to be the case before marriage. And in particular, uh, and you had mentioned this already, those pieces where folks are acting out of some type of need. Um, they're looking for attention. They're looking for love. They're looking for a relationship. They're looking for something that was lacking, which ideally is not going to be the case in a sacred marriage. Uh, it's it's a gift instead of uh, I need something, right? So there's that piece there just, you know, even when someone says, well, it's not like I was raped, so I'm fully responsible. It's like, well, I don't know if that's true. Were you really fully responsible? Or were you out searching for something, looking for something during that time of of loss and pain, of hurt, anxiety, whatever. The second piece is you had spoken about preparing for marriage, that that's often a time where people come back to their faith. What is that context? What does that dynamic look like when people are coming back into their faith and they're preparing for marriage and they might be preparing to marry someone that has lived a more chaste life than they had in their past? How do you reconcile that difference? Um, and thirdly, <laughs> uh, it seems as though, especially in Christian circles, there can be a uh, disproportionate idea of purity and chastity, uh, particularly where there's a different expectation for women as there are for men. And I, I know like Joshua Harris's book, who's not even Christian anymore, um, that was really destructive during that time. And so I'm curious about that dynamic as well, because there is a proper Christian idea of the virtue of chastity to which men and women are both called. Uh, but it seems as though a pure woman is more virtuous than a pure man. So I'm throwing all that out there. <laughs> Talk for you yeah. to and, just and you, go with you it. thought I was the one with all the follow up questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just, just shows right there. Well, I, I feel like I've already forgotten what question one was. So okay, so the first one was um, f the full consent to the act. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's circumstantial in a lot of ways. Like, um, you know, if we're talking about, you know, a client who has struggles with their parental relationship and they're trying to fulfill um, that that loss or that missing piece, um, you know, we can we can see where people are out seeking um, fulfillment and acceptance through sexual relationships. And so we know that's one of those places that that happens. Um, and so I think, you know, that's something important to take into consideration. Like, what was that missing thing that you were seeking? Um, I think the Christian answer would be the missing link is God and, you know, you're seeking him. But, you know, that isn't always obvious to the seeker. Um, and so, you know, because it's not obvious, it's also not like something they can be held accountable for, right? So if it wasn't clear to them that that's what they should be doing, um, you know, then like that's just the unknown, right? Like I, I can't, I can't go back and re-know the things I know now. I have to accept where I was and my knowledge then. Um, so I think that's part of it. I also think, um, you know, situations happen where people are 
under the influence of others, they're um, intoxicated or, you know, under the influence of substances um, and, or they're out of their element, you know, they're in a new place, they're, they're not feeling safe, they're not feeling secure. Um, and so when they look back on the person they are, you know, in their 30s and 40s versus the person they were in their early 20s or teen years, when they didn't have you know, the strategies and the knowledge and, and weren't equipped to make informed decisions on the level that maybe they needed to. Um, we have to help them find that, that space to be like, okay, how much of this um, is just truly, I was young and didn't know, or how much of this is, yeah, I knew better and did it anyway. Um, and then what do I do with that, regardless of which one it is? Great. And I know I asked a lot there. So how does that look um, in terms of preparing for marriage where there might be a disproportionate amount of a sexual past between the two future spouses? Well, I think that really is, um, you know, an individual thing for, for each couple to work through. I think, um, you know, premarital counseling is always important to kind of like help prepare those expectations going in and where those incongruencies are between the two and their experiences. Um, I definitely think um, it can foster questions and insecurities um, either either direction, um, whether it's the person who's more experienced or less experienced. Um, and so I think we really have to be mindful when we're counseling couples in that scenario to help them kind of come to some sort of understanding about that. And, you know, how are they going to frame that so that they can, you know, openly love one another and not feel vulnerable in that incongruence between the two of them? Dr. Phillips Harris. Um, yeah, a lot there. Um, but just real quick before we wrap up today is, can you just share, and I know you've done a lot of uh, research on this and, and wrote on this, but the power and the importance of self-forgiveness in this process um, I've worked with a lot of individuals that have gone through 12-step um, programs. Mm -hmm. And there is, comes to a step nine where you make amends. And one of the, a lot of the text says is not only are you making amends to others, but you do need to make amends to yourself. And, and I've seen firsthand the power in that self-forgiveness and what that self-forgiveness does to some of that shame. And can you just kind of share a little bit on on how important that is into this kind of healing journey of uh, those moral inju injuries and the shame that re results in it, how self-forgiveness plays into that. Yeah, self-forgiveness plays a very important role. I mean, we all live in our bodies and we have thoughts and feelings and experiences. And um, when things happen in our world, we all respond um, in various ways. And so, you know, our thoughts and our feelings drive our behaviors and, um, and really kind of change that trajectory. And so, you know, when we're talking about how that help people respond, sometimes we have to help them, you know, name things to tame them, right? So what is going on here? And, and um, what are, what are your thoughts? What are, are those cognitions, you know, positive or negative? Are they supporting and helping you? Or are they um, causing like further damage or negative 
outcomes and behavior. Um, we're talking about sexual shame in particular. Um, we know that um, there's a lot of addiction associated with sexual behaviors. Um, and the problem is that um, if you are in a cycle of sexual behavior and sexual shame that is incongruent with your moral values, then you really are going to um, seek relief by doing the thing that's causing you more shame. And so a lot of times we'll talk about pornography as an example. Um, if someone is using pornography as um, a stress reliever, um, then when they um, use that um, and participate in those behaviors, then um, if they morally feel like that's against their values and beliefs, then they feel guilt and shame about those acts. And then they get in a cycle of perpetuating that behavior because it provides relief, even though it's a maladaptive um, coping strategy, but they want to, you know, experience that relief. And at the same time, they end up feeling more shame because they once again failed to stop themselves from doing the thing that they're addicted to. And so um, that's where we see that cycle of sexual shame perpetuate in that experience, which, you know, the more shame you experience, the, the greater depression that you're going to have and the the lower you're going to get in your ability to um, self-regulate and and pull yourself um, through that process um, so you see a lot of self-condemnation and um, just a cycle of negative self-talk that that reinforces those behaviors in that cycle boy that is spot on and you know this conversation obviously we're just scratching the surface of this pyramid or whatever we're doing here, Robert, right? Um, yeah, and, right at the tip. That's what yeah. we're, you're scratching off, right? <laughs> Iceberg, whatever, you know. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. But um, Dr. Phillips Harris, it's just really helpful because, um, I mean, obviously this is something I'm really passionate about because I just nailed you with like three questions in one shot. <laughs> um, I know, we didn't even talk about Josh Harris yet. We can if you, please go for it. Um, <laughs> um. Well, yeah, I, I think um, I think the influence of the purity movement is kind of a big deal um, in American culture and it is an important one to think about. You know, I was a teen in the 90s, so um, that book was super popular during that time. Um, I don't remember receiving any direct instruction on um, following the teachings of Josh Harris, which is funny, by the way, because my husband's name is Josh Harris. But but not that one. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that, so, um, the Josh Harris that wrote, um, the, the book that the purity movement is based on is really, um, you know, an interesting, it's an interesting influence that it's had on our culture because, um, it really has made this, this big impact on where to focus our sexual morality and um, and how we should behave um, as young emerging adults. Um, that was different from before that book came out. And, you know, there were there were guidelines, there were expectations, but the shame that came with um, that book for a lot of people and, and, and learning about that approach to Christian sexuality has had a, a long 
lasting impact, especially on a lot of women. And so what um, is coming out now for those of us who are in our 40s who were a part of that process um, is that, you know, women who participated in those teachings and, and men too, um, really just had to, you know, look at, wow, wh where are these beliefs coming from that I'm having? And why am I still feeling guilty about things I did in my 20s? now as a married person um and why are those things still affecting my relationship with god and my husband or my wife um and so it's really kind of an interesting thing so you know when we talk about how those teachings influenced um, men and women you know, we'll start with men so a lot of that uh focused on um really not having a lot of responsibility in that process and um you know not a lot of programs didn't even include men in in, in their teachings um and then the the ones that um you know so the the purity movement had a lot to do with teaching women how to be pure how to be modest how to dress appropriately um that their it was their responsibility to not be objectified um if they were being objectified they were doing something wrong um and you know it was their responsibility to not tempt their male peers or counterparts um and and really eliminated a lot of the responsibility for the male to be responsible for his thoughts and feelings um, regarding the female body. Um, and so, you know, women became responsible for protecting their own um, sexual purity and, and men were not held to that same standard. Um, and, and let's talk, I mean, just in history in general, that's been a very common theme, right? You know, if we look at the women during biblical times, they um, really didn't have a whole lot of rights and, you know, their chastity and their purity was the thing that gave them honor. And so um, it didn't work the opposite way though, right? Even in that culture, you know, people, men had, could have many wives and all these different pieces. Um, and so, when we look at, you know, where's our value and, and how does God see us? Um, God wants all of us to be equally living in his will and doing things God's way and, and being committed in our relationships and, and not um, just one of those people, but both of the people in our relationship and that, you know, that partnership is, is equal. Um, that's how God intended it. You know, we know sin entered the world and changed that process that we're all kind of trying to undo in our relationships. But, um, you know, ideally, God wanted there to be a man and a woman who came together and loved one another and celebrated their love through their sexual relationship um, and did that in partnership with God. And yet, we don't see a lot of that happening. And I think... Um, I think the Joshua Harris book just really kind of reinforced that in the modern age, in the modern world, that like we, this idea that women are responsible and, and the male is not, um, and women are still feeling a lot of shame because of the teachings of that book.
Um, and a lot of them are coming out talking about the impact that that whole process has had on their relationship with God and their husbands. Yeah, that is that is really good, Dr. Phillips Harris. And, and I don't know if you saw this or not on our screen, but uh, when you mentioned those that are forty years old, Jeff just kind of had a smile there because you know he's so he's so young compared to, to old timers. So I, I I just I didn't know if you saw that or not because I picked up on it right away. So I, I saw the laugh. I wasn't sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all right. That's all right. It's okay. It's okay. No, <laughs> I, and I'm all serious. This is, this is this is obviously something that you know is a big deal this is this is something the moral injury in injury the shame the um you know self-forgiveness piece how that affects us you know how it affects our identity how it affects our actions how it affects our relationships how it affects our behaviors and and you know and then what i say to that is that often has significant ripples and those ripples affect a lot of different people and so, you know, I think it's it's definitely something that 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 we need to gain as counselors a better understanding on, because uh, we're going to face it. And uh, you know, and I think a lot of times it is the root of the problem. If we can get to the root of that, there's a lot of healing and a lot of uh, just growth that happens, and a lot of real reflection on an individual's self identity, as you said, as as God designed it to be. So, there's a lot there. I know it's a, a, a big topic, and I'm sure you encountered that in the research. Um, I'm sure that's why Brene Brown has been able to to, to continue to do it because the the dad data continues to keep uh, expanding. So. Thank you for taking the time today and just to be with us, to share with us, um, and just uh, and just thanks for um, and that time because we know that you're busy uh, from your bio, and uh, we're always humbled and appreciative of of the, our guests to come on and, and spend that time with us. So thank you. Absolutely, it's been my pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Thanks yeah. for inviting me. Thanks. You did a great job for your first time, Doc. Way to yeah. go. Aw, thank you. <laughs> so, so Jeff, thank you for, for always being a great co-host. I want to thank our listeners for hanging in there with us, as always. Um, we enjoy doing this for you. Hope that you you were able to just get some nuggets of information that you can use um, in your life, um, in your practice, uh, in your school, whatever whatever you're at. May you continue to to just grow in some of the knowledge that we're able to provide on this show. So thank you for listening and feel free to check us out on upcoming episodes. Have a great day and God bless.